Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. This is uh, this is episode four, season one, episode four. Season one, episode four, but it's chapter three. Yeah. Do you find uh, that confusing? Are the listeners going to be confused? You know, I wish there were a way around it. There probably was because The Ambitious Card is the only book in the series. It starts with a prologue, doesn't line up chapter one with episode one. Next season, when we do the bullet catch, they will all line up. And I will tell you that uh, one of the first reviews I got for The Ambitious Card, uh, the reviewer loved the book, but he or she then went on to rant and rave about how much they hated a prologue not just this prologue, but any kind of prologue uh, mm. in a book that jumps ahead, which I can kind of understand. The reason it was there was because there's no real tension in the book. No one's getting killed or anything for a while. It takes a while to set this one up. Uh, and I thought the prologue, which puts you in the cave, at the, you know, far into the story was a, a fun way to do it. This particular reviewer hated it. No one else has commented on it. Uh, and I really hadn't thought about it again until I started numbering these episodes. So there wow. we are. I'm, I, I just didn't want anybody to be confused, mostly me. I'm confused every time. But as long as you've got your bookmark set to uh, take us to chapter three, then we should be fine. I, uh, I heard from a few friends of mine who have downloaded the podcast and have been listening along and uh, finding things out, like the difference between a, a skeptic and a debunker. And uh, so a shout out to my friend Jeff, who's enjoying it. I've heard a cup from a couple of friends that they're enjoying it. I hope they're enjoying it half as much as I'm enjoying doing it with you. Oh, well, we're... a weird way, of course. No, of course not. It's not that kind of episode. Well, this uh, this episode, we're going to continue with our mentalism theme that we started last time. Last time we had the amazing Kreskin on because chapter two of the book had a lot of mentalism. Chapter three continues with Gray's Mentalism Act. And we thought it'd be fun to talk to a couple slightly more contemporary mentalists, which uh, most people in the U.S. probably have not heard of unless you're a magician. Mm-hmm. I think they're a little better known uh, in Great Britain, but they are both former teachers. One taught math, one taught chemistry, who uh, had done magic since college. And um, they formed the team uh, Morgan and West. They are time-traveling magicians and all-around spiffing chaps who are from the Victorian age, but they they are here with us to, to do magic and mentalism. So both you and I have their most recent book, which I believe is called Parlor Tricks, which is a great book for magicians. It really it, is. It not only walks you through a complete 75-minute uh, act or 90-minute act, but also some great essays on why they do the things they do. And that's what makes them so interesting as, as mentalists and performers is the, the amount of thought that they put into it. Anyway, Morgan and West were nice enough to chat with me about uh, mentalism, the idea of good mentalism versus bad mentalism, how to mix mentalism and magic. One of the things they talked about, which is, I think, really interesting, is the importance of failing, which is something Kreskin talked about in the last episode, Right. his reaction to failing and how that is part of the process. And they both, all three, Morgan, West, and Kreskin talked about their biggest concern is making a connection, not just with the volunteer on stage, with the whole audience. That's what their act is all about, is making a connection. Anyway, they uh, were kind enough to uh, get online and, and talk to me. And all the way from Oxford, England, yeah. here's Morgan and West. We've often said, actually, before that one, we, uh, there's a quote from Teller that's, uh, where he says that he believes he's a successful magician because he thinks like a movie editor. 
and and we like oh. to consider that we think we're successful magicians because we think like scientists. Mm. Yep, I think that's true. So, in your mind, what makes for a good mentalism routine? The, I think the most important thing is a connection with the audience, and that doesn't just go for ma- mentalism; it goes for magic as well. And the problem I think often you get with mentalism routines is that it's even more of a superpower than magic is. Magic is quite a superpower because you're doing something impossible, whereas mentalism is even more so because there is no possible physical cause of it. You can't so you know, I wave this magic wand or I snap my fingers or I sprinkle this fairy dust. You know, it's, it's always, um, I have this incredible power and often skill. These days it's often presented as skill. And that can be quite alienating for an audience. And so you have to really work very hard to make it relatable. In point as well, the, the mistake that magicians make is that thinking that connection with the audience means connection with the person whose mind you're reading. Precisely. Whereas, whereas we mean connection with the entire audience who are watching, mm. not just with the person who you've pretended to hypnotize and are now telling them the name of the first person they kissed. Because mentalism is so small. It's even smaller than a coin vanish because it's infinitesimally small. It's in someone's mind. And um, you have to work very, very hard to include everyone in what's going on, be that by showing your process, um, be it real or fake process, whatever that process is, or by um, when you're asking someone on stage with you, your volunteer to think of something, giving the opportunity of everyone to also have a connection to the thing. So rather than saying, I'd like you to think of the first person that you kissed, like Rob was just sort of said, because that's a very personal thing. And it doesn't immediately cause everyone else to think about the first person that they've kissed for a whole plethora of reasons. Whereas if you say to someone, um, I want you to think about the, the supermarket that you prefer to shop at, then everyone sort of instantly has an opinion. It's a very relatable thing. It's a very instantaneous reaction to that. It just makes it more connected, I think, if, if you're a bit it, more careful about what you choose as a subject. just matter. more interesting for an audience yeah. as well in that if you reveal a name or a number or, I mean, you know, let's say the number of someone's bank card or something or the, or the, the serial number of a dollar bill, no one cares what the answer is. I mean, they care if you get it right or not, but also they kind of know you're going to get it right. But no one cares what the answer is. Whereas if you can do a piece of mentalism where the information you're revealing, if it is a piece of mentalism, it is personal to person, but also the, the rest of the audience care about it. So we talk in, in the book projects that we wrote about, I think, musical artists and saying like, what your favorite musical recording artist is. Not only do people know who the Beatles are or know who the Stones are in terms of like, I was saying that, but that answer says something about you as a person when giving it. So it makes the audience member part of the sort of the story of the trick where you get someone up and they you want to think of a, yeah, where they shop or what they, what, what they would order in a cocktail bar or what music they listen to. Those things are the kind of things that people kind of would use as getting to know you questions with someone. You know, that sounded like if you met a stranger and went, oh, okay, what's your favorite movie trilogy of all time? And what was the last book you read? And so like, those are things that say something about you, whereas just saying, think of the name of someone close to you. No one in the audience cares whether that name is Sarah or John or it's too personal. whatever. It's too personal. It's too close. How did you come to figure that out? We did a magic trick about biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as in cookies rather than... Cookies. Uh, as in, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah it's, it, and it, honestly, a lot of our... Uh, like a lot of good science, um, a, a lot of our ideas come from accidents that we then pull apart and analyze and try and work out why we think they exist as the way they do. 
So we started out by doing a piece of mentalism about biscuits because we thought it was a fun idea. And then after thinking about it a while, sort of realised, oh, it really hits an audience. And I've now done it in front of a lot of different audiences. And here's, I think, the reasons why it hits and why the reasons that other things don't hit and talking to other people about it. And, and, and I think our earlier work, we did do the whole think of someone close to you, think of a beloved family mm. member, think of this stuff. Yeah, All the sort of really trite stuff, which we have a shorthand has been like, it was very meaningful because it's someone you cared about. And, and I think the more that we did that and we saw other people doing that, the more we realized that the magician on stage or the mentalist on stage is there going, God, look, I'm, I'm bloody amazing because I'm making these people think about people they love and that's making this a very emotive experience for them. But for the audience, you're just going, you're just guessing names correctly. Like mm. just think, thinking about the name of the first person you kissed or whatever isn't an inherently emotional experience because most people don't care about that person but it sounds emotive to the, to, to mentalists and they, li they like it because it makes them feel like, oh, I'm doing art. Whereas it's, it's, it's meaningful with a capital M in the way that Sam the Eagle talks about business with a capital B in Muppets yeah. Christmas Carol. It's that kind it's, of level of, yeah. you know, sort of like it's meaningful. It's like meaningful. <laughs> say, uh, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of bad mentalism is done by people taking, weirdly taking themselves too seriously uh, because they have these amazing powers and they're incredibly smart and everything, but also not taking the work seriously enough in that, their methods are a bit clumsy or their staging's lazy or so you go this could be a much better trick like you, you think it's this really grand powerful emotive thing and it's just you guessing a name with eight minutes of admin leading up to it and and for, for something like that to really hit if you are going to do something really powerful and really emotive everything has to be perfect around it yeah. just just because it's so much harder to be you know it's so much harder in many ways to do a really good hamlet than it is to do a really fun bit of nonsense on stage yeah because it has, you have people have to buy into it in a different way, not 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 more. Because I think you have to, as an audience, you buy into a very silly performance in the same depth that you buy into a very serious performance. Just it's much easier to be taken out of a serious performance than it is to be taken out of a silly one. And I think that's often the problem as well is that you'll see people online or on stage doing mentalism performances, especially where they'll be like, "I want you to think about the name of a loved one you've lost," and it's very important. This, but five minutes earlier they're making, they're making dick jokes or you know and and or, or doing bits of business with the audience and going this is not the tone of the show you've set out you're just doing this because you think it's shorthand or it's like a shortcut to meaningfulness there are people who have a problem with mixing mentalism with quote-unquote magic for that exact reason that you're you're doing something quite silly and then the next moment you're you're talking to their their dead grandmother why don't you see an issue with that because you mix both and it's certainly in the, the parlor tricks book you did yeah it's about the tone and also, we, we do inherently believe that audiences know mind reading is fake. Yeah. As in the vast, not, not all of them. Like, there are performers I've seen, and, and Darren Brown is one of them, and Luke Jamey is one of them. I've seen performers that do shows that are so convincing or so, or presented in such a way that some of the audience, only a small number, but a small number of the audience, do believe that that person has real psychic powers. I, I mean, heck, also, even when we saw Luke Jamey for the first time, it was at a magic convention. So we'd been doing magic for four years at this point, three or four years, and we saw him live for the first time. And I remember we both looked at each other after the show and went, I guess he's just psychic, because what the that hell could is be real. On? That could be real. I do not know how he did 99% of that stuff. Yeah. That could be real. And it was convincing. And so all the mentalists that will tell you anecdotal stories about how someone came up to them and asked them for a private reading and someone came to them and do this, they're like, yeah, but those are the same people that go and see mediums, that go and see those people are so primed to believe it's not actually a great marker of skill that that some person who doesn't believe in coronavirus and who does believe in 
the government implanting chips in you also believes that you can read minds. But I think deep down, most audiences know it's all nonsense. Mm -hmm. So there is no one in the audience goes, wait a second, I thought he really was divining who wrote each thing based on their signature. But actually, now that he's doing hippity hop rabbits, I don't believe it. The, the important thing is, is that difference of tone. It's, it's the whiplash and audience experiences from a, a tonal difference rather than inherently the difference between magic and mentalism. You know, it, it, it's the same in film. You can have, there, there are two films that came out in a very similar period of time that I have quite strong opinions about. Um, and they're very similar films. One is Shaun of the Dead, which is a, a rom-com zom. And one is Severance, which is a comedy horror. And uh, I really like Shaun of the Dead because I think he does a very good job of blending the comedy and the horror. And I really don't like Severance because I think Severance, some bits are really good horror some bits are really good comedy and they very rarely blend. And you get, I find I get whiplash when I'm watching it because it goes, that bit's comedy, that bit's horror. That, and I just never know what I'm supposed to be settling into as a rhythm. Yeah, you get it a bit, quite a lot, I think, in modern TV shows that try and add like a zany element to it where it'll be, there'll be a bank robber or a thing or a war and someone's kind of making quips. And it's like, but it doesn't quite fit because it's not a quippy film or not a quippy show. Mm. They just think it would be funny if someone said that. Like, I mean, it's not quite the same, but I remember in uh, the in episode one of Star Wars in Phantom Menace, there's a bit where they're doing the pod racing and it's all very tense and it cuts to Anakin and he goes, whoa, this is tense. Yes. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was until you said that and now it's very silly. <laughs> like, and that's and that's the best scene in that film. So, yeah, so. Uh, you know, that's the best 10 minutes in that film. So what are you going to do? It, and it's the same whiplash of going, here's a very serious thing, here's a silly joke or a bit of business is you know it's because the, the audience then don't know what's coming next they, yeah. they don't know how to ex how to interact how to engage with what's coming next well with this idea that that you have that hardly anyone in the audience is really believing this they're going along with you on it why is it also important then to add sort of a, a, a make the characters a little fallible how does that help sell something that's already pretend i think you, the making of a good hero is overcoming something and if you're going to overcome something, you need to have failings. So, I mean, you, to, to you, use a... you know this yourself, John. You 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 write. You know you've you've right. written seven books with this character, and you know that if this character has got is it can if you've got a character that can do everything, you run out of things to do with them super quickly. I mean, yes. look at especially in the crime genre. Look at Sherlock Holmes. One of the reasons Sherlock Holmes is a bit dull is that Sherlock Holmes is Sherlock stands up, looks at someone, and immediately goes, "Well, obviously, it's this," right. and and is right, and it's a bit dull. We want to see reflection of self. None of us are perfect in any way, shape, or form, and the ones that think they are definitely aren't. And so we, we want to see reflection of self in what we do. And occasionally it's fun to have the infallible character, but even then it gets dull quickly. Like, you know, well, by the time we hit second Iron Man film, we've got to bring in all the plot lines about Tony Stark's drinking problem. Otherwise it's just dull, and it's why no Superman other than Christopher Reeve is interesting. Can can you pinpoint a point in the act where you purposely added in some fallibility? I think the first time we actively wrote a trick that was inherently fallible in itself is, I think, a trick that you've seen, because I think we did it at the first Magi Fest, uh, a, a trick involving the Harry Potter books, where mm. it seems like things have gone completely wrong. And it's essentially a, it, what, what is known in magic as the genre of sucker tricks, where the magician in trouble plot, because the magician in trouble plot is a very popular plot because it works very, very well because it creates that fallibility. But the difference with this one was we use time travel to go and fix things. It, genu it feels like it genuinely goes wrong and we use time travel to go and fix things. And I think that was the start of the journey of, of really sort of 
and that was our second Edinburgh show, I think. So that was 2010 yeah. when we wrote this trick. That was the start of the journey of working out, right, okay, we need to make sure we can't be all powerful. Because the show before that, Bamboozlement, there were foibles in what was going on. But it, at no point did things, was it sort of truly fallible, I would say. I would say the, the, one, the one thing in our first show that sort of led to a lot of the material we made later was we did a cups and balls with teacups mm. and sugar cubes. Mm-hmm. And inherent within the presentation of that was an argument between Reese and myself. Yeah. And while that's not, fallibility doesn't need to be, sometimes you do your trick wrong. It just needs to be something about you that's neg- some sort of negative thing. And it might, and one of the ones we use a lot is we are essentially bickering. Which we get and an advantage one, of as a double act because it's very hard which, to pick yeah, with yourself on stage. Very hard to pick with yourself. <laughs> but the other thing that is a, a the perfect sort of fanability of, or, or vulnerability to give to a stage performer is looking stupid. So in the in there's a trick at the end of our show, Politrix, um, called uh, the Miraculous Escape of Mr. West, and it's me escaping from a cloth bag. So it's in no way dangerous or anything. And one of the things is that when I get out of the bag the second time, or maybe the third time, I deliberately mess up my hair. Because the character of Mr. West is a very vain character and is meant to be very vain and in control. And so, and the, the build-up to the trick is the fact that Mr. West doesn't like doing the trick because it's embarrassing and, and sort of demeaning. And the point is, if you're going to set up the idea that the trick is demeaning, that, that Mr. West doesn't like the trick is demeaning, the trick has to be demeaning. It doesn't need to be like awful, but mm. just having to climb, laboriously climb into a bag and then obviously do some sort of dodgy stuff behind a curtain and then come out my hair's all a mess. And I think the, the reason magicians and a lot of mentalists don't have fallibility in that is because they're desperately trying to look cool and smart at all times. Whereas if you do look stupid or you do do something that makes you look like a fool, the audience don't think less of you because they know it's an act. Hmm. They know you did it on purpose, whether it's doing something wrong in the act or just doing something where the trick works, but you look like an idiot. And it's just it warms you to the audience much more. You've, you've talked in the past about preferring the idea of uh, impossible, having an impossible skill over mentalism. And I think there are audiences of yours who would walk out after at least seeing the Parlor Trick show and go, no, they didn't do any mentalism. There was no mentalism in that show. Uh, There's a lot of impossible skills. Uh, And I think intrasensory perception is the perfect example of that, where in other hands, it would feel like mentalism. But you kind of said, no, we're not mentalists. This is just a skill. How did you come to that? And why do you think that works better than saying, quote unquote, I'm reading minds. In 2011, we tried to write an entirely mentalism based show. And it was only an hour long. It was called Crime Solving Magicians. Um, and in fact, we rewatched it on our YouTube channel very recently. And we very quickly realized when writing that show, that if you limit yourself to the idea of mind reading, you are limiting yourself to one plot. Yeah. Um, and, and you have to work is, so hard. I can read minds. <laughs> Which <laughs> is why most mentalists can not only read minds, but also predict the future, but all, but also influence events, even if those events are random. Like one of our, our sort of pet peeves with a mentalist is watching someone say, oh, but I influenced you to make all these decisions where one of the decisions was rolling a dice or something like that. And you go, well, you didn't influence that, did you? Because that was random. That person doesn't know how to fake a dice roll. Yeah. And, and it's that thing of, whereas for... We just didn't have enough ideas. And I think mentalism, once you go, okay, I've read your mind. Okay, I've predicted something. Okay, I've influenced you something. I guess I'll read your mind again. Whereas if you reskin a mentalism routine as any other method, like any other thing other than I'm a telepath, be it, you know, like, like uh, Max Somerset, a British magician years ago on a TV special, did a bit of tasting 
the bottom of someone's shoe and telling them they were where they were from. They got off the train. They they, 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 they were coming off the train and and you tell them what 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 stop on the train they got on at. Uh, and by chasing their shoes. And and that that's all it is 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 finding things that are overt demonstrations of method because also once you've kind of furrowed your brow and held your temples once that's fine but it's not 70 80 100 years ago where people thought that maybe they were genuinely reading minds i think it does also hark back to that really and even though whenever we present things so intrasensory perception like you talked about it's, it's all about our five senses and it's all done in a very silly way because the other thing we like to do with these fake skill mentalism pieces is tip to people i mean i think in intrasensory perception there is a line that says this is literally nonsense you know yeah um we like to tip to people by making it so impossible with the skill that we're using that clearly it's not that either but it's a nice just sort of it's a nice peg to hang hang the 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 trick on um because people don't believe in telepathy and we don't want people to believe either that i can tell the serial number on a banknote by licking the banknote it's just window dressing it's just fun interesting window dressing and one of the things we say to magicians a lot is that you can sort of you can improve your act without ever improving the magic just by dressing things up differently and performing it differently. And usually what a demonstration of possible skill is, is something to do while the admin of the trick is going on. Because mm. basically it is, they think of a thing, you find out what it is and you pretend you knew it in advance or you found out by telepathy is every mind reading trick. And the presentation of his possible skill is going, well, okay, I'm going to do something and it can be anything so I can make it as interesting as I want where that the, the allows me to find out the thing they've thought of. So that mentalism goes from looking like someone on stage holding a pad correctly guessing things and maybe looking at you and going, hmm, that becomes Reese with a tube up their nose, having someone blow down it or Reese blindfolded with handkerchiefs in their ears, feeling someone's palm to tell them and feeling the cards on their fingers to tell them what job they do. It's that thing going... If you think of a magic show as, well, we've got all these sort of reveals we're going to do, and then we've got the admin of how we actually get the information, but then in between those two points, we've got to do just something. It's the click of the fingers. It's the woofle dust. It's the wave of the magic wand. It's it's all of those things. You can't, you've got to keep it moving. You've got to keep it up in the air and keep it and different think, and interesting. I think mentalists flatter themselves to think that the woofle dust and the magic wand is what makes magic lame. Whereas actually if done properly, that stuff is what makes magic great. And there, there is no real difference to going, and now I tap my magic wand three times and, and we say, Izzy, Wizzy, let's get busy. And, and then the magic happens. There's, there's no difference to that and telling someone to go ace, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ace, two, three, four, five, you know, like, or whatever. Those methods are as nonsense as one another and really as interesting as one another by the time you've seen it once. And we've all seen those a million times. So what, isn't it the job of the mentalist, given that you can do anything there, to do something no one's done before? You know, those guys are so funny and so interesting. Uh, they do so much thinking about the reason they do the things they do. One of the things you can do online is if you go to their YouTube channel, there'll be a link for that in the show notes. They have taken past shows of theirs and they've done narration over them. So it's kind of like a commentary track of here's our Edinburgh show from 2011. And they talk about what's happening while it's happening and why they did what they did. And You're kidding. It's really interesting stuff. One of the things that they talked about in, uh, in our chat, which I thought was so interesting, was the idea that unless you, you add something to the equation, just the idea of mind reading 
isn't enough. You can do that once. Yes. And then if that's all you've got, then that's, that, that's the rest of your show. And that's yeah. just not going to work. Isn't that interesting? Because who would have, you know, having been fascinated by this subject since I was a kid, magic, mentalism, since I was a kid, who, who would, I, I never thought of that. But of course, they're absolutely right. If you can read minds, then once you've done it, everything else is just doing it again. And yeah. now, now I'm going to guess a number. And now yeah. I'm going to guess a color. And now mm -hmm. I'm going to read your mind about. So I just found that, you know, kind of mind blowing uh, uh, all in its own. This idea that once you've done it, what's you're just doing it again. Yep. And and that's why when they talked about their routine intersensory perception, it is just mind reading, but they just do it through the different senses. Yeah. So he's feeling things, he's smelling things, he's tasting things. And as Rob says, the rest of it is, is just the administration. It's you set up the trick, there's the admin, you do the reveal. And it, it's making the administration of it eat more interesting. Charming, funny. Yes. Yeah, entertaining. All of those things that we all strive for, they, uh, they put a lot of thought into that. And that's probably why they are as successful as they are. Yeah, there's just so much thought has gone into it. And, and yeah. they're, they're all around spiffing chaps. They're just, they're just so, so much fun to talk to. So if you ever get a chance uh, to see them either on TV or live, I would run, not walk to see Morgan and West. So with all this mentalism going on, why don't we dive into chapter three, just to quickly recap. So we remember where we are in the story. Eli is in the midst of watching Gray's mentalism act on a live TV show being broadcast from the Wabasha Street Caves. Uh, watching along with him are his new landlord and his magic student, Pete. And Clive Albans, a British freelance journalist who is in the Twin Cities in the hopes of interviewing Eli's Uncle Harry. And of course, Uncle Harry is not there because he's asked Eli to substitute for him on this show. The Ambitious Card and Eli Marks Mystery. Chapter 3. The act continued in this manner for several minutes. Nova picked audience members, and Gray read their minds as they concentrated on the books and magazines in front of them. The routine went smoothly, more smoothly than the previous exercise, that's for sure, with only one noticeable hiccup. Nova had approached an audience member who had received a copy of Business Week magazine. She spoke with him briefly. Gray, she said as she turned back toward the stage, I'm standing here with Chad. He's looking at page 16 of Business Week magazine. Page 16 of Business Week magazine, Gray repeated. Let me see. He put his hand to his forehead and leaned forward in concentration. I'm seeing an article about employee compensation, am I right? Chad nodded to Gray, and then, realizing that the man was blindfolded, he leaned over to the microphone Nova was holding. Yes, he said, employee compensation. And the headline, the headline reads, More employees willing to walk to get higher wages. Is that correct? Yes, it is, Chad confirmed, shaking his head in amazement. I also see... Gray started to say and then stopped. He put a hand up to his forehead and then shook his head. I also see, he repeated this sentence, getting no further than the earlier attempt. In addition to the headline, 
His voice trailed off as he pushed his hand harder into his forehead. I turned from the stage back to the TV monitor, which was on a tight close-up of Gray. It looked as if he was beginning to sweat. There was a long, awkward pause as Gray shook his head from side to side. No, he said in a raspy whisper. No, absolutely not. No. No, I said no. With a ferocious, almost violent move, Gray stood up suddenly and ripped his blindfold off, throwing it down onto the stage. He looked out at the audience, his eyes squinting in reaction to the sudden exposure to light after having been covered for so long. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, he said, quickly regaining his composure. On rare occasions, while in the midst of the spiritual flow such as I was just immersed within, an unwelcome spirit will intrude upon the proceedings. A most unwelcome spirit. At times like that, it is best to simply break the connection with that particular entity, permanently. He ran a hand through his hair to ensure that each strand was still properly in place, then stepped to the edge of the stage. I think it's time to begin the portion of the program that most of you have come here tonight to experience. I will connect to the other side, connect with your loved ones, and answer questions that are near and dear to your hearts. Nova, are the questions prepared? By the sudden buzz of excitement that broke out in the room, it was clear that this was, in fact, the portion of the evening that the audience had come to experience. As the facts go, it was simplicity itself. Nova presented Gray with a large punch bowl filled with small tan envelopes. Before the show, each audience member had written a question on a slip of paper, folded it, and sealed it in one of the small envelopes. For the performance, Gray would then remove an envelope from the bowl, hold it to his forehead for a moment, then announce the question, the name of the questioner, and then provide an answer from the beyond for the hopeful participant. One important note before we begin... Gray said, pulling a match from his pocket and striking it on the table. I should warn you that when the stream to the other side is opened, it is not entirely uncommon for an impatient spirit to jump his or her place in line, he said as he lit a candle on the table. He moved it to the center of the table, adjusting the position of a large silver ashtray next to it. When that happens, he continued, I will have no clue that a new spirit has stepped in and taken the place of the spirit I was communicating with. Consequently, the information I'm receiving may no longer be relevant to the person I'm talking to. I will need your help, all of you, he said, spreading his hands wide to encompass the whole room. If the information I'm providing to you is correct, please acknowledge it by saying, yes, loudly and clearly. And if you're seated across the room and suddenly feel that what I'm saying is applying to you, please let me know right away. Is that clear? Like obedient students, the audience nodded at Gray as one. Good. Let us begin, he said, as he pulled out the chair next to the table and sat. Lighting in the room shifted to increase the already moody ambiance and eerie organ music again began to echo throughout the cavern. 
He closed his eyes and reached into the bowl, taking out a single envelope and holding it up near his temple for a long moment. Rene T. Gray said finally. Rene, are you here? A blonde woman in her late twenties stood in the crowd and meekly held her hand up. Gray turned his head in her direction as Nova moved through the crowd to her with the handheld microphone. You are curious about a relationship, are you not? Renee nodded, wringing her hands together nervously. Remembering Gray's earlier instruction, she quickly added, Yes, yes. Gray closed his eyes. This is a relationship of long duration, am I right? Yes, a year and a half, she said. Renee, a year and a half is merely a blink in the eye of the universe. I'm seeing that this relationship has existed in this life and many previous incarnations, and that the two of you are working out issues now that have existed between you for millennia. You are arguing more now than usual, am I right? Renee nodded again. Yes, it feels like it. One of the reasons you've been brought together in this life is to continue to work on these differences. But make no mistake, this person is your soulmate, and you will indeed make progress that will help not only in this life, but in future lives as well. Thank you. Renee said as she sighed in relief and began to sit down again. Gray raised his right hand and closed his eyes for a moment. Renee, I'm also getting that you have a work relationship that is beginning to come to a boiling point. Does that make sense? Renee cocked her head to one side, considering this. I believe so, yes, she said, beginning to nod in agreement. Watch that closely for the next three weeks. Some changes are in order, he instructed as he picked up his letter opener and ripped open the envelope he had been holding the entire time. He pulled out the slip of paper and read it aloud. Can you tell me if I should stay with my boyfriend? Signed, Rene T. He smiled at her as the audience applauded. He held the slip of paper over the candle and it began to smoke and then burned down to an ash. He held on to it for a long time, the flames flickering at his fingertips before dropping it onto a large ashtray on the table. He reached into the bowl and withdrew another envelope as the audience appeared to lean forward as one in anticipation. And so it went for over 30 minutes. Gray took envelope after envelope out of the bowl, identifying the owner and their question, and offering a detailed answer as well as other facts about the person and their life before opening the envelope and reading their actual question aloud. Then he'd burn the question and move on to the next envelope. How the devil is he doing this? Clive asked in a raspy whisper. It's extraordinary. I shrugged. He's good, but it's all pretty simple stuff, really. He's one ahead, that's for sure. The rest is just a mix of cold reading, deductive reasoning, and a solid understanding of human nature. One ahead? One ahead of what? Pete asked, not taking his eyes off Gray, who was in the midst of giving a fellow a message from the man's recently deceased father. The guy was nearly in tears, his head bobbing up and down along with everything Gray was saying. 
Somehow, he got a hold of the first question ahead of time, I explained quietly. Probably a switch of some kind, the Al Baker or the Moldavian. And so, every time he appears to be opening an envelope to read the question he just answered, he's actually reading the next question. One ahead, Pete repeated. Yeah, it's used all the time in magic, in cards, coins, hell, even cups and balls is a one ahead. It's all about having a piece of information the audience doesn't know you have. You can work tons of variations on it, and the audience is none the wiser. I was going to explain further, but something Gray was saying snuck into my consciousness and grabbed my attention. In fact, for a brief moment, it sounded like he was talking about me. Here's a little secret about mentalism. The audience plays the primary role in its success, much more than the performer. That's because the human brain, in all its evolutionary glory, insists on filling in gaps. If you give the brain A and then follow it up with C, it's going to do its darndest to connect the two with some form of B. Consequently, all the mentalist really has to do is toss out random words that your brain can grab onto and try to make sense of. If he says, I'm getting a very powerful feeling about apples, then the average brain immediately searches for any connection it can make to apples. And pretty soon you're thinking, hey, I just had an apple last Thursday. This guy's pretty good. The trouble is, even when you understand the principle, it's difficult to keep your brain from getting caught up in it. Which is exactly what happened to my brain when it heard Gray say, Who here had something taken from them by someone named Ed? Uh, someone that sounds like Ed, maybe Ted? That immediately struck a nerve in my brain because I did, in fact, have something taken from me by a guy named Fred, which my advanced brain immediately recognized as rhyming with Ed. Fred took my wife, and he was the reason I was now living in a third-floor apartment above my uncle's magic shop. Of course, on a purely intellectual level, I knew that wasn't the case. Fred hadn't actually taken anything from me. My now ex-wife Deirdre had left our marriage and married someone else. I might be angry about the manner in which she had done it, allowing the two relationships to overlap inconveniently, but nothing had been stolen. One husband had simply been exchanged for another, not unlike taking one automobile and trading it in for a new one. The only irregularity, of course, was that Deirdre had still been driving the first car while she test drove the second. But who could blame them, really? They had worked closely for a number of years. She is a fast-rising assistant district attorney. He is a hotshot cop on his way to becoming a hotshot homicide detective. Deirdre really had far more in common with Fred than she did with me, a guy whose greatest skill, it appeared, was the ability to make a gallon of milk disappear into a rolled-up newspaper. All this flashed through my brain in a nanosecond, and I mentally returned to the performance in time to hear Gray talking to a woman who had lost her virginity to a guy named Ned. Like I said, the brain will find the connection, regardless of how tenuous. Gray finished his short reading for the woman, and the audience applauded as they had done each time, regardless of his level of accuracy. He held up one hand to quiet them. Ladies and gentlemen, I can feel my connection to the spirit world growing weaker, the braided strands to the other side unraveling by the moment. 
could I impose upon my first helper to return to the stage to assist my journey back across that bridge? Sharon, the overdressed, matronly woman, quickly made her way back to the stage, moving toward Gray, who was still seated stiffly in the high-backed chair. She placed two fingers on his wrist, moving them once, and then again, and then once more. She shook her head. There's no pulse, she said, a note of dread in her voice. No, not just yet, Gray agreed. I'm still on the precipice. He closed his eyes and went through his deep breathing routine again. As he did, Sharon occasionally adjusted her grip on his wrist. After several moments, she started nodding, a little at first and then more confidently. There it is, she said. I can feel the pulse. I can feel it. Gray opened his eyes. Yes, yes, he said, smiling like a Cheshire cat. I have returned. Thank you, Sharon. He stood and ushered her off stage and then turned to the applauding crowd. And thanks to all of you. I will leave you tonight with the words of a great man, the amazing Dunninger, who so wisely said, For those who believe, no explanation is necessary. For those who do not believe, no explanation will suffice. Good night. He bowed deeply, took a step back, and then bowed again. The pipe organ music began blasting through the room as the audience stood en masse, applauding wildly. Some had tears running down their faces, some were hugging each other, and the rest were clapping their hands vigorously as Gray took yet another overly dramatic bow. "'You're up next!' a voice next to me yelled over the applause. The floor manager had appeared by my side, looking from me to the applauding crowd. Boy, that's going to be one hell of a tough act to follow. Thanks, I said. Thanks a lot. That's just what I needed to hear. All righty. That's the end of Gray's act. And now it's uh, Eli's turn to perform, which is what we'll listen to at the next episode. Gray's not a real nice guy. You get that sense. I do. I I, I don't feel good about Gray, just straight across the board. It's not like I've pre-read this or anything, but... I've got a bad feeling about Gray. And what's interesting, uh, having listened to both Kreskin and Morgan West talk about the importance of failure and the importance, particularly Morgan West talk about the importance of appearing fallible on stage. I believe uh, in this chapter and in the last chapter, Gray fails a couple times on stage and does not handle it well, kind of comes out of character because he's not happy about it. And it reminded me of uh, when we talked to Kreskin at the last episode when he failed rather spectacularly on Letterman. And I believe the link was in those show notes. When he finds out that he's wrong, he jumps up and falls on the floor uh, as if he's had a heart attack or something. And, uh, and, and is just laughing hysterically, which is not Gray's attitude. Gray uh, is not a, not a good sport about. No, things not he's not amazing. Well. No, he's not. He's not. So few amazing. people are. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, um, before we wrap up this episode, and I think it's really time for us to do that, I want to thank Morgan and Wes for chatting with us uh, for such a long time about mentalism and magic. Yeah, it was very nice of them. And you can follow the two of them at their website, morganandwest.co.uk. And they're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Morgan and West. That's all one word with and spelled out Morgan and West. And you should you should absolutely check them out because they're going to be huge and you're going to be able to say, oh, yeah, 
I know Morgan and Wes. You know why? Because I listen to the Eli Marks podcast. I've been their fans for years. And you probably saw them first when you checked out the show notes. That's what you should do next. Check out this episode's show notes. Uh, we've got links to Morgan and West performing, including their two appearances on Penn and Teller Foolish. So that's good news, even for me, who have not checked this week's show notes yet because I was off. This is episode four, but it was chapter three. So I didn't check the show notes because I was confused, but now I will. Well, we're going to confuse you even more because we're wrapping up. But next time, we're going to we're going to listen to Chapter 4 on episode, episode 5. Um, It'll be Episode 5, we're going to listen to Chapter 4. I'm going to need it. The, the free slide rule with every episode <laughs> from this point forward. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, hit that subscribe button. Have you done that yet, Jim? <laughs> of course I have. I don't think I count. Okay. And please rate us as well. We'd like fives across the board. But if you hate us, give us a four. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. We'll talk to you next time. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Thanks for listening. <laughs>